Confusion is what sets in when multiple choices, multiple ideas are present. On the spirit plane, it is clear. In the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, when only one voice, God's voice, was observed, our grandparents, Adam and Eve, were immortal and lived in paradise. They were free of confusion. Confusion entered when the second voice, Satan's voice, entered and was entertained by Eve. Today, a myriad of voices speak, but there are still only two. The first voice is God's voice, and in English, it is found in your authorized King James Version of the Holy Bible. The second voice is Satan's, and a deadly voice it is. It takes on many natures, often even seeming to be one voice pitted against another, but they all exhibit a common denominator their unified aversion to the absolute inerrant truth found in the Word of God. God's Word is truth, and it has zero tolerance for spiritual diversity, because that is the nature of truth, and God's Word is truth. John seventeen seventeen, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy Word is truth. 2 plus 2 equals 4. And 3.99 just won't do, no matter how eloquently presented. Consider these beautiful verses. Revelation 22:18 and 19. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life, and out of the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Job speaks of God in Job chapter 22, verse 13. But he is in one mind, and who can turn him? And what his soul desireth, even that he doeth. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Confusion and its deadly results end when all the voices are silenced and God's word, the Creator's word, is lifted up. This process begins at a place Jesus calls born again. John 3, 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Have you been born again? born a real second time, this time of the Spirit of God? Will today be your day where sin and its confusion and its shame are erased from your record and even erased from God's memory? Will God's Christ, whose name in Revelation 19.13 is the Word of God, become the first and only voice you follow? Jesus prays for us in John chapter 17, verse 21, and he says this, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Today, you can change everything. This decision dictates eternity. Do you yearn for clearness of mind? Do you yearn for cleanness of spirit? Follow me in this simple prompt, and it will be yours. Are you ready? Click on the Further with Jesus for childlike instructions and immediate entry into the kingdom of God. Now for today's subject. God said Genesis 6, 12 through 22. 
And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make it of. The length of the ark shall be three hundred cubits, the breadth of it fifty cubits, and the height of it thirty cubits. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above, and the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife, and thy sons' wives with thee. And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort, shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female. Of fowls after their kind, and of cattle after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind, two of every sort shall come unto thee to keep them alive. And take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten, and thou shalt uh, gather it to thee, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. God said, Matthew twenty four thirty seven through 39, But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood... They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Man said, Noah and his boat just doesn't work for me. I'm not interested in Sunday school tales. I want truth. Now the record. Welcome to God Said, Man Said, feature article 945 that will once again verify by credible third-party witnesses that God is. All of these features are archived here in text and streaming audio for the edification of the children of God and as ammunition in the battle for the souls of men. Every Thursday Eve, God willing, they grow by one. Take advantage of four highly beneficial God Said, Man Said features. One, you have questions, God has answers. Whatever your question, type a keyword into the search bar top right and watch the screen populate with related information from Adam and Eve to quantum physics. Number two, use the tell a friend feature above to send a message to someone you love. It is quick and easy. Three, imagine. You can download nearly 351 hours of God Said, Man Said features to your electronic device. Listen to one every day. And number four, sign up for the God Said, Man Said weekly broadcast, and fresh bread will be delivered to you, God willing, every Thursday eve. Thank you for visiting. May God's face shine upon you with light and truth. Children of God become such via faith and their confession. Romans 10.10, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. 
This glorious status is not achieved as a result of one's great analytic skills. The born-again experience is a spiritual experience which preempts all one plus one equals two rationale. Salvation can only be spiritually discerned. Romans eight fourteen through 16, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. I know I am a son of God because the Spirit of God bears witness with me that I am. The born-again begins life journey as a result of God's Word and continues on believing God's Word is true and righteous altogether. The marvelous inerrant Word of God is the standard by which all of life is viewed and measured. The child of God views everything through the eyes of faith, and let me emphasize, everything. Those not born again, on the other hand, approach life from a spiritually dead position and view all things through the eyes of unbelief. Ephesians 2.1 tells us they are dead in trespasses and sins. The believer and the unbeliever are exact opposites and are a demonstration of what God said man said has dubbed the 180 principle. A circle has 360 degrees, and at 180 degrees, you are at exact opposites. Example of the 180 principle would include God is light, Satan is darkness. God is love, Satan is hate. God is life, Satan is death. God's children are children of faith. Satan's children are children of unbelief. These are the same kind of measure, but at opposite ends of the yardstick. Carnal academia refuses to retain God in their knowledge, and as a result, Romans one twenty eight says, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. A reprobate mind is a worthless one. This is the reason the camp of the faithful and the camp of the unfaithful look at the same facts but come up with polar opposite conclusions. An example is Genesis 1, verse 26. And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Man was made in the glorious image and likeness of God. But according to carnal academia, we evolved from some primordial soup in a blob of slime. They say no to being made in the glorious image of God just over 6,000 years ago in favor of a one-celled organism evolving over hundreds of millions of years into what we are today. Also, our cousin is a banana. Exact opposites, wouldn't you say? Second Thessalonians 2.10 tells us that in the last days, the hearts of the unredeemed will be bound up by the deceivableness of unrighteousness. Unrighteousness is simply unbelief. We have surely arrived. Isn't that exciting? Hallelujah! It's almost over. Prepare for departure, children of faith. 180 degrees out, that will be the conclusion when one views the facts through faith in God's Word versus what one sees when one views those same facts through the lens of unbelief. And that would be fine if it were not that God's word is true and righteous altogether. 
Evolution's quest was to offer a natural, godless explanation for the creation of the earth, its universe, and all its life forms. According to Darwin, the theory of evolution will make God irrelevant. Evolution is the god of man's academics. Foundational to the theory of evolution is the principle or theory of uniformitarianism. Uniformitarianism declares that the present is the key to the past. Evolutionists assume that measuring geological history as it plays out in real time can be extrapolated backwards because they assume that all of life basically moves along at a steady, uniform pace. Looking as they do through the eyes of unbelief, the evolutionists have neglected to consider two colossally major events that were anything but uniform. The first is the six-day creation. If a uniformitarian had arrived on earth at the end of the sixth day of creation, he would have assumed the earth and its universe would have billions of years of history when it was only six days old. If a uniformitarian had met up with a fully developed Adam six minutes after God created him and breathed up his nostrils, the uniformitarian would assume age even hundreds of millions of years of evolution when the fact remains that Adam was only six minutes old. The second geological event that fully upends the premise of uniformity is the earth-ending global flood in the days of Noah, which happened nearly 4,400 years ago. Noah's Ark and the global flood, could this Sunday school staple actually be true? God said man said has published a host of features regarding the global flood, and be it known to all believers, the corroborating evidence is literally pouring in. Get ready for the latest. Foundational excerpts from previous God said man said features follow. God said man said, Noah shows up in Washington state. So many things, billions, even innumerable, shout absolutely yes to the miraculous story of Noah's Ark. The mountain of evidence continues to grow, yet skeptics and vociferous challengers still manage to cling on. Yet all the evidence shouts yes. Paleontology says yes. Archaeology says yes. Geology says yes. Nearly 500 ancient societal records say yes. Fish fossils on every mountain peak say yes. Flood strata covering 75% of the earth, yes. Billions of fossils buried by water action say yes. Dinosaurs say yes. Soft tissue and dinosaur bones say yes. The Grand Canyon says yes. The reemergence of global catastrophism says yes, all yes. Carnal academia must resist no at all cost. For if they yield to the amazing accumulation of evidence that certifies Noah, they will have lost all. Their ungodly educations, their ungodly careers, their ungodly universities, their ungodly textbooks, videos, publications, and theories of evolution would all be gone. Then it would be, how do I pay the mortgage? How do I become gainfully employed, producing something of real value? If Noah is true, and he is, they are in a heap of trouble, heaps upon heaps. But it doesn't end there. Now something else sets in. A soon-coming judgment day, when the God of Noah sits upon his throne, and all men stand before him to give an account of their deeds, and how they have handled the issue of the blood of Jesus Christ. This is more than the ungodly can endure. They must resist. 
The headline in the July 8, 2012 issue of Discover magazine reads, Traces of the Great Flood, and the subhead reads, Geologists long rejected the notion that floods of biblical proportions had ever occurred until one of them found proof of a Noah-like catastrophe in the widely eroded river valleys of Washington State. End of quote. God said, man said feature, Noah's Ark boarding now. Keep in mind when you see the word marine, it means of or related to the sea, and sedimentary means laid down by water action. Chalk it up to a global flood is the headline of the feature written by Dr. Andrew Snelling in the July-September 2016 feature of Answers. The feature shouts yes to the global flood in the days of Noah. About Dr. Snelling, Dr. Andrew Snelling holds a Ph.D. in geology from the University of Sydney and has worked as a consultant research geologist in both Australia and America. Author of numerous scientific articles, Dr. Snelling is now the Director of Research at Answers in Genesis, USA. Much of the feature follows. When I was a boy, cringing at the occasional chalk squeak, I never realized these small white sticks actually came from a thick layer of rock made up of microscopic fossils. That's what chalk is, a soft, pure, fine-textured limestone that has a marine origin and is usually white. It consists of primarily 90 to 99% of the mineral calcite formed mainly by the shells of floating microorganisms set in a very fine matrix. University geology classes teach that these beds of chalk required millions of years to be deposited as very tiny shells slowly sank and settled on the seafloor and mixed with lime to form an ooze. Because of chalk beds, fine grain consistency, and voluminous tiny fossil shells, evolutionary geologists have sought to explain their formation based on the limey oozy, ooze excuse me, on today's ocean floor. This ooze is widespread and depths shallower uh, from 14,775 feet. Evolutionary geologists claim that the ooze has accumulated one grain at a time at the rate of between 0.008 and 0.08 inches per year. The ooze consists almost entirely of tiny shells of single-celled creatures because fish and other large creatures get eaten or decay before they even reach the seafloor. So it would take 100,000 to 1 million years to accumulate the 650-foot thickness needed for the homogeneous ooze to be converted into chalk. Evolutionists claim the process of depositing chalk lasted for 40 million years. That's the interpretation I heard in my university class, too. First, let's take a look at where the main chalk beds are located. The white chalk cliffs of Dover are an iconic English landmark, but similar chalk cliffs are also found to the west along the southern English coast near Brighton and to the north along part of the Yorkshire coast. The chalk beds that connect these areas are estimated to average over 1,300 feet in thickness. The same chalk beds also crop out along the Antrim coast of Northern Ireland and can be traced right across Europe, France, Germany, Poland, and beyond to Turkey, Egypt, Israel, and even Kazakhstan. Similar chalk beds are found in the Midwestern USA, from Nebraska to Texas and from Alabama to Colorado. 
They include the Nile Brer Chalk in Kansas, which is famous for its astonishing variety of fossils. Chalk beds are also found in the Perth Basin of the southern western Australia, the Jinjin Chalk, and contains the same fossils as the English chalk beds, as well as the same types of rock layers above and below them. All these chalk beds are at the same relative level in the global geologic record, so they represent one global sedimentary rock unit. This similarity explains why they have all been assigned to the Cretaceous geological period. The name itself is derived from Creta, the Latin word for chalk. Since they're all at the same level, we know all these chalk beds were deposited at the same time. But did these chalk beds take 40 million years to accumulate? Absolutely not. The unusual jumbled mix of fossils dispels the evolutionary scenario of slow and gradual accumulation of tiny grains in a placid sea over 40 million years. The chalk fabric consists primarily of the tiny fossil remains of single-celled organisms called foraminifers and of coccoliths, tiny plates which were the external skeletons of certain kinds of algae set in a very fine-grained calcite. Even more important is the existence of so many larger fossils found mixed in the chalk beds. How did all these large, diverse creatures get buried in the ooze, unlike what we find on the ocean floor today? The list of large fossils is huge. English chalk bed fossils include many big seafloored animals like sponges, corals, bryozones, which are lace corals, brachypods, lampshells, bivalves, which are clams, gastropods, ammonites, nautiloids, uh, belemiths, astropods, crabs and lobsters, and uh, echinoderms, crinoids, starfish, and anemones. The chalk beds also contain a host of other creatures, the fossilized jaws and teeth of fish, and fossil remains of turtles, ithosaurs, Uh, pleosaurs, marine lizards, flying reptiles, pterosaurs, and even dinosaurs, which lived on the land. The Niobrara chalk in Kansas uh, contains an even more impressive list of larger fossils. Fish of various types up to 16 feet long, sharks, turtles up to 13 feet long, uh, pleosaurs up to 46 feet long, mosasaurs up to 49 feet long, pterosaurs with wingspans up to 30 feet Dinosaurs, such as ankylosaurs and hadrosaurs, up to 30 feet, and birds up to six and a half feet tall. How could so many large ocean-dwelling and land-dwelling creatures get buried together in ooze on the ocean floor in the past when this is not happening today? Where do we see limey ooze slowly accumulating on the continents today and burying and fossilizing huge ocean-dwellers like the extinct plesiosaurs and mosasaurs, together with large land-dwellers like the extinct dinosaurs and pterosaurs? Or what about the fossil found in in the Kansas beds of the voracious predatory fish Xyphactinus odex, 13 feet long, with a nearly perfectly preserved 6-foot-long fish Gillicus arcutus inside of it? Nowhere. We simply do not see such burial and fossilization happening today on such a massive and catastrophic scale.
to fossil such large creatures. Enormous amounts of sediment has to bury them instantly before the creatures had time to escape. Fish are known to decompose quickly unless they are completely buried within a few days. Yet the fish found fossilized in the chalk beds show no signs of decay. So the claim that the chalk beds accumulate slowly, one grain at a time, falling to the bottom of a placid sea, is demolished by the evidence of all these catastrophically buried fossils. Now also remember that these chalk beds stretch around the globe, so a global distribution of the chalk beds required a global flood cataclysm, just as the Bible describes. Snelling concludes, But for those of us who seek to know the Lord and understand His work, good answers can be found. Just look at common chalk. It offers phenomenal evidence for the veracity of the biblical flood, yet another testimony that we can trust God and His Word. Chalk another one up to God's Word. End of quotes. Professors write in Antichrist Evolutionary Principles on Blackboards, and ironically, they write them with Noah's chalk sticks. God said, man said, dinosaurs and sea monsters of the Bible found. Author Carl Whelan displays on the pages of his book, Dragons of the Deep, the 50-foot-long, 40-ton sea monster, Shonasaurus. The name means Soshone Mountain Reptile, Whelan writes. Shonasaurus was adapted as the state fossil of Nevada, the state in which the fossil from which it was first described were found. The location in which Shonasaurus Falls came to light is, is interesting, too. The Shoshone Mountains of Nevada are in the middle of a desert, yet 36 Shonasaurus fossils were found together there at an altitude of over 7,000 feet. Some have suggested that this unusual grouping could have been from a whole school of these massive reptiles beaching themselves, like some whales have been known to do. The problem with this explanation is that we know that such beached whales do not go on to form preserved fossil skeletons. Exposed on a beach, even their skeletons would just fall apart unless they were catastrophically buried. Imagine what sort of catastrophe it would take to suddenly bury and cover 36 school bus-sized creatures. Another evidence of rapid burial and massive watery action is the fact that the 36 Shonasars were not found in haphazard directions, but all seemed to be more or less lined up in a north-south direction. This suggests that powerful water currents lined them up when they were washed into place by the catastrophe that preserved them. Since the Genesis flood covered the whole globe, it's no surprise that we find sea creatures in inland regions, too, including the tops of high mountains. End of quote. On page 44 in the book Dragons of the Deep, you'll find sarcosuchus that grew up to 40 feet in length, weighing in at 8 tons. A fossilized sarcosuchus was found in 1964, guess where? In the Sahara Desert. The more fossils, the vast, vast majority of them buried by water action, testify of Noah's flood. In 1843, the fossil of Cretoxorina was discovered in the U.S., this creature grew to lengths of up to 25 feet and weighed as much as three tons, Whelan writes. Like all extinct sharks with their skeletons of cartilage instead of bone, this brute 
did not leave many fossils behind other than its teeth. In the late 1800s, however, some remarkably complete specimens were found, suggesting that they had been rapidly buried. One rare complete specimen containing 150 teeth was clearly flattened by the weight of the sediment that buried it, end of quotes. The headline from the April 2019 issue of Acts and Facts reads, Marine Fossils Mixed with Hell Creek Dinosaurs. Geologist Dr. Tim Clary writes about a new species of shark excavated in the same area where land-dwelling animals such as T-Rex were discovered, which has carnal academics stumped. Recently, a new species of shark was found at the site where T-Rex, Sioux, was extracted. While it didn't surprise flood geologists, it required some special pleading by evolutionary scientists to explain away another apparent marine animal in the wrong place. Sue was discovered in South Dakota in the sedimentary rock unit known as Hell Creek Formation. This formation also covers parts of North Dakota and Montana and resides near the top of a massive pile of sedimentary rocks called the Williston Basin. A few years ago, I researched the HCF and showed that it was encapsulated top and bottom by sedimentary rocks that even secular scientists agree are marine in origin. Secular scientists have found numerous marine invertebrate fossils throughout the HCF. Using the informed subdivisions identified by earlier scientists, they determined there were marine fossils in three of the four subunits brackish water, and marine bivalves called crassostra, oysters, and corbicula clams, gastropods, and the uh, crustacean trace fossils off of Morpha were common throughout the formation. A variety of animal groups are found in the upper crustaceous HCF and in the over, uh, overlying um, paleogene Fort Union formation. The data show multiple examples of mixed land freshwater and marine influences in the upper Hell Creek Formation. These results mesh well with the marine influence found in North Dakota. Surprisingly, in two volumes of papers published on the HCF in the last 20 years, little is mentioned of the occurrence of five, now six, species of sharks, the 14 species of fish, and the bivalves that indicate a marine influence on the formation. Secular scientists either ignore these findings or dismiss, dismiss them excuse me, as freshwater sharks and fish in spite of the more reasonable conclusion that they represent marine organisms. The bottom line is that the Fox Hills formation directly below the HCF is accepted as a marine deposit, and the unit immediately above the HCF, the cannonball member of the Fort Union Formation, is accepted as a marine deposit, yet Hell Creek itself is claimed to be terrestrial solely because it contains dinosaur fossils, but it's filled with marine fossils from top to bottom. This is nothing new for the global rock record. We see this same fossil mix across all continents. Even most European Cretaceous dinosaurs are found not just mixed with marine fossils, but in actual marine rocks like chalk and limestone. Spinosaurus, the largest theropod dinosaur ever discovered, was found in Morocco 
with car-sized fossils of colacanth fish, which today are only found in the deep ocean. The best explanation of the mix of land and marine organisms is not fluctuating sea levels, as most secular scientists claim, but a massive global flood that covered all the continents, just as Genesis describes, end of quote. When you look through the eyes of faith in God's Word, all the hard questions are answered easily. Embrace the beautiful book with ear bowed down and enjoy abundant and even eternal life. God's Word is true and righteous altogether, and it can only be spiritually discerned. God said, Genesis six twelve through 22, And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood, rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make it of. The length of the ark shall be three hundred cubits, the breadth of it fifty cubits, and the height of it thirty cubits. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above. And the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort, shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female. Of fowls after their kind, and of cattle after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind, two of every sort shall come unto thee to keep them alive. And take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten, and thou shalt gather it to thee, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. God said, Matthew chapter 24, 34, uh, 37, excuse me, through 39, But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Man said, Noah and his boat just doesn't work for me. I'm not interested in Sunday school tales. I want truth. Now you have the record.